welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 75, Legend of the Five Rings. Before we get rolling this week, I need to apologize for last week's non-show. I picked up a bit of a head cold the previous weekend, and by the time I'd gotten this episode written and ready to record, I'd basically lost my voice. Now, while I could have recorded the episode and had it out on time, it would have required a lot more time and a lot more editing than I really had the time for, so I made the decision to shelve the show and do it properly this week. The cold has passed, the voice is primed and ready, so let's get to it. Legend of the Five Rings, known as L5R for short, has a very long and detailed history, both as a role-playing game and a collectible card game. Now, normally I don't hit the history of collectible card games, but this week we're going to cover the complete history of L5R, so that means we're covering the card games as well. The reason for this adjustment in procedure is that elements of the card games have made their way into the role-playing game. So to truly understand all of it, we have to look at all of the areas L5R has produced materials in. So with that note out of the way, let's crank up the tour bus and get looking at Legend of the Five Rings. L5R was created by the team of John Zisner, Dave Say, Ryan Dancy, Dave Williams, DJ Trindle, Matt Wilson, and John Wick. Now for the record, not all of the creators worked on every portion of the L5R world, but we're going to name them all here, then mention who did what as we go along. What we can say is that Alderac Entertainment was the publisher when L5R was released. The first product to come out in the L5R line was the Legend of the Five Rings collectible card game. Say, Zinzer, and Williams get the design credit for the line, and Alderac Entertainment Group published the game as part of a joint venture with Isomedia. The first run of the game came out in 1995, and we'll go over various runs in the line as we go along. L5R got a Gen Con preview in 95, then saw the release of the Imperial Edition set in October of that year. That set began what became known as the Clan War arc of the game. The joint venture survived for just a bit longer before it was dissolved, and Five Rings Publishing Group, or FRPG, was created to give the intellectual property an owner, which came in handy when Wizards of the Coast acquired it in 1997. Hasbro, which became the corporation Wizards was a subsidiary of in 2000, put the rights to L5R up for sale, and Alderac regained the rights to publish in 2001, and then they got the full rights over the next few years and continued to publish the game for about a decade afterwards. Now, like I said, we'll get more into the specific releases of card sets as we go along, since the stories of the card sets kind of fits into the story of the system as a whole. Alderac Entertainment Group owned L5R solely until 2015. On September 11th of that year, AEG announced that they'd sold the rights to Fantasy Flight Games, and they created a new version of the card game, which was, as you might guess, incompatible with the previous card game. This game got a living card game release at Gen Con in 2017. Over its history, L5R has not only sold a ton of product and changed both the collectible card game and tabletop role-playing worlds. It's also been a part of legal wranglings with the United States Olympic Committee, or USOC for short. When L5R was initially created, one of the symbols used on the backs of the cards was a symbol that had five interlocking rings on it, organized into what was essentially a star. For the record, this particular design ran through the purchase of L5R by Wizards of the Coast, and Wizards would be the ones to catch the wrath of the USOC. 
See, the United States Congress had, many years before, given the USOC an exclusive right to any symbol that consisted of five interlocking rings, not just those that looked like the official Olympic rings. And that was a special act of Congress, so good luck challenging it in court. Ultimately, Wizards just decided that the smart move would be to drop the symbol and use something new. Now, for the role-playing game, that was no big deal. I mean, you change some artwork or symbols, and the next printing has those changes. For a collectible card game, this causes a few more problems. Let's look at it this way. If pretty much all of the deck I'm using for a game has the Five Rings logo on it, but I've put in some cards for the new run with the new symbols on it, Whomever I'm playing can make moves based on the backing of the cards they see. After all, the new run of cards wouldn't necessarily be that entire set. So by knowing which cards got reprinted, the opponent could theorize how best to proceed during a game. In essence, my deck has become a marked deck, and that sucks for me. Wizards figured out before they even dropped the first run of that next set that this was going to be a problem, so they released the Spirit Wars set with opaque sleeves that would obscure the backs of the cards. So, going back to our example, if I'm playing with sleeves, now we're back to an even playing field. The setting of L5R has remained consistent throughout the history of the game, with a slight detour during the Wizards years, but we'll get to that in a moment. Rokugan is the land created specifically for L5R, and it's also known as the Emerald Empire. Rokugan is based on feudal Japan, but it also has influences from other East Asian cultures, and the creators have tried throughout the game's history to show the utmost respect to these cultures. Samurai, Shujenja, and trained courtiers vie for control of the noble courts of Rokugan. Humans are the primary race in Rokugan, and there are eight great clans and a number of minor ones, and the minor clans tend to be in disarray of some sort. Of course, there's more trouble for Rokugan than just the squabbling clans. There's the Shadowlands, which lie to the southwest of Rokugan. See, the Shadowlands are where the demonic hordes roam free, and every once in a while they make their way out. Now, I mentioned that the game is set primarily in Rokugan, but there are two other nations that have gotten some love during the game's history, Burning Sands and the Ivory Kingdoms. Primarily, they've had members of their societies show up in Rokugan, but there have been a few adventures set in these areas. The inclusion of these societies has been limited, and there's not a whole lot known about them in-game. This is because the Rokugans are very xenophobic, and there's an imperial mandate of non-interaction with Gaijin. I promise we're getting to the games in a moment. I just wanted to take the time to note that 12 novels were published for L5R from July 2000 through December of 2003. Seven of the novels made up the Clan War series, while the other five were the Four Winds saga. There was also a graphic novel published in the setting, Death at Koten, in May of 2009. The assassination of Hida Kisada and the aftermath of his death are covered in that book. Okay, so with background and history out of the way, we can finally get into the games themselves. We'll start with Legend of the Five Rings collectible card game, which, as we mentioned earlier, was initially published in 1995 and ran through 2015. Before we get into too many of the specifics of the game, it should be noted that while it's a lot like Magic the Gathering in many ways, it's quite different in others. One difference is that L5R has what are known as passive win conditions, one of which is the Enlightenment condition, while Magic basically has the goal of destroying your opponent. Now don't get me wrong, L5R has that as well, it just presents other options for winning. Which, if you think about it, playing in a system built on a semblance of honor, it would make sense to have a way other than obliterating your opponent. But 
Maybe that's just me. L5R is played, at least in tournament play, by pairs of players. Outside of tournaments, the group can be larger, but we'll go with the two-person tournament standard. Each player has two decks of at least 40 cards, and this would be the point for me to note that tournament rules used to limit each of those decks to 30 cards. One of these decks is called the Dynasty deck, which is all black-backed cards. The other deck is called the Fate deck, and it's all green-backed cards. Now, the two decks must be kept separate, and other than the 40-card minimum, there's no other limit to the decks except there can only be three of any particular card and only one unique card. Each player also designates one Stronghold card to be their faction and ancestral home. The game begins with each player revealing their Stronghold. The family honor that's printed on the card determines the play order, and as you would expect, the highest honor goes first. In case of a tie, a dice-off or coin toss can be used. The game continues until one of the victory conditions has been reached, and that player is declared the winner. Now, I mentioned two of these a moment ago. Militarily, which is destroying all of the provinces of your opponent, Enlightenment, well, it's just becoming enlightened and putting cards known as rings into play. By honor, which means you reach a certain number of honor points. Dishonor, which has one player forcing their opponent under a certain honor point threshold. And on top of those, there are a couple of special cards that in essence mean, game over, you won. Now, we could get into the nuts and bolts of how the game is played. But since this isn't typically a collectible card game show, I'm not covering it. At least, not in this week's show. Maybe, if there's interest, we can do that down the line. What I do want to do is discuss the various editions of the game, as well as the factions involved, since these play into the role-playing game to some extent. The various editions of the game are divided into what are known as arcs, and these arcs are essentially the storyline and history of the game during that particular edition. Arcs typically start with the release of 300 or more new cards. Down the line, expansion packs totaling 50 to 180 new cards are released, as well as what's known as a promotional set, which can have any number of cards in it and is typically sold directly to the player by the manufacturer. Now, while all the cards in a current arc are legal for tournament play, the number of cards from the previous arc are typically limited to the past few expansion packs. For those who love their terminology, these are known as being dual bugged, and that's based on the circular indicators, or bugs, on the bottom of the card that shows they're legal. For the record, there are also learn-to-play sets, which are specifically designed to teach new players the game and try to bring them into the hobby full-on. The legality of these cards in tournament play depends on the tournament, but since they're primarily designed to get new players involved, it's expected the player will pick up decks in the current arc before jumping into tournament play. With all of that covered, let's check out the nine editions of Legend of the Five Rings. Wait, you think there's more? You'd be right, but they're technically a separate game, and we'll cover that a little bit later on. This list covers the versions released prior to the end of the Alderac license in 2015. The Clan War, or Imperial Edition, was the original arc for the series beginning in October of 1995. At kickoff, there were six legal factions you could use to play. Crab Clan, Crane Clan, Dragon Clan, Lion Clan, Phoenix Clan, and Unicorn Clan. And don't sweat the details too much here, because I'm going to go over those clans in more detail in a little bit. Through the various expansions, six more clans were added. Naga and Scorpion in Shadowlands, 
Toturi's army and Yogo Junzo's army in Anvil of Despair, and Yoritomo's alliance and the Brotherhood of Shinsai in Crimson and Jade. Now, Alderac got the concept of finding a way to bring new players into the fold early on, so the first learn-to-play set, called Battle at Biden Pass, was released in November of 1996. The overall arc was widely popular, and because of that, it got its ending extended. So it ended with Scorpion Clan Coup rather than Time of the Void, which had come out several months earlier. Next up was The Hidden Emperor, also known as the Jade Edition. It launched its new arc in May of 1998 with the release of Jade Edition. At the kickoff, all 12 clans that finished up the Imperial Edition were playable, but Jade Edition added three more. Ninja in Dark Journey Home, Ratlings in Heroes of Rokugan, and Spirits in the Spirit Wars. And this version got not one, but two learn-to-play sets, Siege of Sleeping Mountain in May of 1999, and Storms over Matsu Palace in July of 2000. The Four Winds was the next arc, also known as the Gold Edition. It launched in July of 2001 with the release of the Gold Edition. Factions were adjusted a bit for this set, with the original six factions from Imperial Edition, the Scorpion Clan, and the Shadowlands Horde, which had previously been known as Yogo Junzo's Army, being kept around. Additionally, all of the cards from the promotional set Heroes of Rokugan, which had been released during the Jade Edition, were legal. Yoritomo's Alliance was brought back to the game during the Dark Allies expansion, though the name was changed to the Mantis Clan. No learn to play set for this edition, so if you didn't already have one or know how to play, you were out of luck until the next arc. That arc was the Reign of Blood, also known as the Diamond Edition. The Diamond Edition kicked off the arc in October of 2003, and all of the factions from the Four Winds arc were featured, legal, and fully supported. And the learn to play set was brought back with the Training Grounds in November of 2003. Next up was the Age of Enlightenment, a.k.a. the Lotus Edition. The Lotus Edition kicked off the new arc when it was released in October of 2005. Lotus Edition brought with it some changes to the key concepts of the game, but I'm already going to run long on this week's episode, so we'll leave those for another time. We did get a new faction for the first time in a while, the Spider Clan, and it was released near the end of this particular arc in the Truest Test. Another learn-to-play set was released, The Training Grounds 2, in July of 2006. The Race for the Throne, or Samurai Edition, came to us in July of 2007. The factions were adjusted for this arc, as the Rattlings and Shadowlands Horde were dropped, but the then-new Spider Clan was kept around. No new learn-to-play set was released during this arc, but it wouldn't be too long before we got a new arc anyway, so your patience was rewarded. The Destroyer War, or Celestial Edition, was next, dropping in June of 2009. Now, unlike some of the other editions, this one picked up at the end of the tournament storyline, The War of Dark Five. This made this arc a bit different than normal, as new arcs usually picked up with new storylines. Battle of Cute and Tonbo was the learn-to-play set, and it released in September of 2010 and had decks for Lion and Dragon. The Age of Conquest, or Emperor Edition, released in February of 2012. It was supposed to be released in November of 2011, but it ran into delays along the way, and so it got pushed back. All of the previous factions appeared in this edition, and the Learn to Play set was released in December of 2012. Called Honor and Treachery, it was basically a set of battles between the Phoenix and Scorpion clans. 
The last release in this line was the Ivory Edition, which came out on March 24th, 2014. Again, the rules were streamlined, with the intention being to make the cards easier to read and understand, and to make gameplay smoother. As with the Emperor Edition, all of the previous factions were available, and there was one more learn-to-play set. A Matter of Honor was released in late 2014, and it featured the Crab and Lion clans. So... I talked about all these clans as I was going through the additions, so why don't we take the time to explain what these clans were all about. And for those wondering why I'm spending so much time getting into this much detail about a card game, again, it's because if you understand the card game and kind of what makes it tick, the tabletop role-playing game makes that much more sense. Just trust me on this one. We'll start with the factions introduced in the Imperial Edition, and we'll run forward from there. Crab Clan. This is basically a military clan, with their primary focus being on defending Rokugan from the Shadowlands and the nasties that live there. Crane Clan. These are your artists, courtiers, and duelist types. They look for victory in the recognition of honorable deeds. Dragon Clan. So, this clan and its people are considered to be mysterious, mostly because they're isolationists. Monks and duelists are the primary folk in the Dragon Clan, and they tend to speak in riddles and such. For the Dragon Clan, it's victory by any means, though the Enlightenment condition seems to be the one they're best at. Lion Clan. If you're a Bushido fan, this is your clan since they are very firm believers in that. They're considered to be deadly warriors, and military victory is their primary condition. Though it must be noted, honorable victory is also a condition they're known to win by. Phoenix Clan. These are your wizard types, called Shujenja in the game. They're exceptionally honorable, and that's their primary win condition. Oh, and while they lean pacifist, don't let that fool you. They'll up and get medieval on your ass if you push them too far, and they can win working that way if they need to. Unicorn Clan. Now, would it surprise you to know that these are the masters of the horse? Cavalry attacks are their primary weapon, and of course their primary victory condition is military, though an honor victory isn't past the realm of possibility for them. Next up are the factions that appeared in the Clan War arc. Naga. If the name didn't give that away, these are snake people. They can't win with an honor victory, but military? Oh yeah, yeah, they can definitely do that. Scorpion Clan. So this would be the other side of that Crane Clan coin. They like to shame the courts to get what they want, so an honorable victory isn't in the cards for them. <laughs> get it? In the cards? Yeah, all right, I'm moving on. A military victory isn't unusual for the Scorpion Clan, but it will be more subtle and sneaky than some of the other clans. Torturi's Army. Now, these are Ronin, so you know they're going to try to win with honor. A military victory is also possible since these are pretty badass warriors. Yogo Junzo's army slash the Shadowlands Horde. These are the monstrous types like goblins, trolls, yada, yada, yada. They're looking for the destruction of Rokugan by any means. So when this faction went away, it was rolled into the Spider Clan. We'll touch on that in just a minute. Yoritomo's Alliance. This started as a conglomeration of several minor clans. However, when it was all said and done, this group became a major clan and was renamed the Mantis Clan. The Brotherhood of Shinsei. Monks, obviously. Monk equals pacifist traditionally, so enlightenment and honor victory conditions were at the top of the list. However, if it came to heavy combat, they were certainly equipped to do the job. Now, there were three more factions introduced during the Hidden Emperor arc. The Ninja slash Lying Darkness. 
these were considered to be the ultimate evil, and they wanted to destroy everything they came into contact with. For the record, while this faction was destroyed, there are surviving members of it in the Spider Clan. Ratlings. These were literally rat people with a stronghold. I think that's enough said. Spirits. Not much to say about them either. They got a stronghold in the final expansion of the Jade Edition. So there. And there are four more factions that we need to mention that came up during the rest of the arcs. Spider Clan. Considering it was founded by the Dark Lord of the Shadowlands, it should be pretty obvious what they wanted. Kill, maim, loot, destroy. Imperial. These were the forces of the Imperial household during the raid on Second City in the Emperor Edition. Fudu. This was a rogue faction of the Shinsei following the teachings of a new master. And Panku followed the whims of the mad dragon Panku. Now, there were a ton of minor clans in Rokugan, but time and space don't allow me to run through all of them today. But before we move on to the role-playing game, let's do a review and mention a couple of awards the game got. We'll go with the review from Steve Farragher in Arcane Magazine. He gave the game an 8 out of 10 and said that, quote, L5R is a splendid game, redolent with the atmosphere of ancient Japan, end quote. L5R The Battle of Biden Pass won a three-way tie for the 1997 Origins Award for Best Card Game of 1996, and L5R got the 2007 Origins Award for Best Collectible Card Game of the Year. Okay, so let's finally get into the L5R role-playing game. Alderac Entertainment was responsible for the first four editions of the game, which were released in 1997, 2000, 2005, and 2010. Fantasy Flight Games released the 5th edition in 2018. The listed designers for the L5R role-playing game are Brian Yoon, Fred Wan, John Wick, Rich Wolf, Seth Mason, Sean Carmen, and Rob Hobart. And not counting one specific version of the book, which we'll get to during our breakdown, the five editions of this game have produced 125 different books and supplements for play. Now, during 2nd edition, Wizards of the Coast used their card game license to bring L5R to their Oriental Adventures. What that meant was during most of 2nd edition, the books had two sets of stats, one for the Alderac Entertainment version and one for the D20 version from Wizards. And I'm not counting any of the Oriental Adventures product Wizards released during this time in the overall total, and that's mostly because it wasn't nearly as popular as Wizard had hoped it would be, and that was mostly because those who were interested in playing L5R could just pick up Alderac's version. Looking into the setting of L5R, we discussed some of Rokugan when we were setting up the card game. For those who might have missed that, Rokugan is based on feudal Japan in many ways, though other Asian cultures have been utilized in the setting as well. One of the primary spots this can be seen in is in the usage of magic and mythical beasts, which have a direct tie to the myths and stories of several Asian countries. Also, as we just noted, Rokugan society is based on a clan structure, with eight great clans being part of the system, along with a number of minor clans. As you may know, clans are made up of several family lines, going back to the beginning of the family line, typically. Each clan has its own lands, though they're owned by the emperor, who takes taxes as payment for the family getting to stay on the land. Like I said, if you understand how the card game works, it explains a lot of the background and setting. So with that, why don't we pop the hood and see what makes this role-playing game tick? L5R is, with the exception of the wizard's content, a D10 system. 
As we've discussed previously with the D10 system, D10s explode, which adds to the total of the die roll. And L5R also uses the roll and keep method, which as we've also discussed previously, involves a number of dice to roll and a number of dice you keep. Now, 5th edition alters the roll and keep system a bit, which allows you to basically take your kept dice and add them together to get your total. But otherwise, it's basically the same system we've discussed here and on a number of other occasions. When it comes to the characters themselves, L5R uses eight traits, stamina, willpower, strength, perception, agility, intelligence, reflexes, and awareness, and they're grouped into pairs associated with elemental rings. For those not aware, those would be earth, water, fire, and air. When you're dealing with these rings, they tend to have a limit in advancement because you've got to increase both traits within the ring in order to increase the ring overall. And some of the rings are in opposition, which makes getting anything increased in those traits just a wee bit more difficult. Now, with a game called L5R, you know there's got to be a fifth ring. It's called The Void, and it was adapted from Miyamoto Musashi's The Book of Five Rings. However, it was pointed out on more than one site I checked out that a better translation of Void would be nothingness. Void is the character's inner strength, and it's what allows them to either perform extraordinary actions or be more efficient in normal ones. So we've discussed traits as a part of character creation. Why stop there? Why not keep building? L5R does something a bit different from the usual methods in character creation in role-playing games. Rather than allow for die rolls for random generation, L5R only uses the point-by system for character creation. Each new character begins with 40 character points to spend to create, with Ronan being the exception to that rule because they get 55. The points are used to raise trait levels, skills, and to purchase new skills. By the way, those are the point totals from 4th edition, as previous editions started with 30 and 45, respectively. Advantage can also be purchased, and these work the same way as advantages in pretty much every other game we've seen them in. There are also disadvantages if you so choose, and again, we've seen how those works in other games. One big 5th edition change is the use of a 20-question system. These questions determine skill, social, and ring stats. So, in this regard... L5R has an entirely new and different way to create characters. There's one more note I want to make here, and that's that L5R is considered by most to be exceptionally lethal. Roleplay and strategy are not only encouraged, but pretty much necessary. I read more than one tale online about the party that ran headlong into a situation only to lose damn near everybody in a matter of moments. So the basic idea is to try to avoid combat, but to be strategic if combat is unavoidable. In 1998, L5R won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game of 1997. L5R also won the 2006 Any Award for Best Interior Art. Pyramid Magazine said this about L5R, quote, I have a great deal of nostalgia for FGU's classic game Bushido, and Legend of the Five Rings captures much of Bushido's oriental swords and sorcery feel with, thankfully, much more comprehensible rules. Now, I mentioned earlier that Fantasy Flight Games relaunched the collectible card game after they acquired the rights in 2015. Brad Andres, Eric Dahlman, and Nate French get the designer credits for this, and the first set of the new line got a public viewing at Gen Con in August of 2017, before being released wide on October 5th of the same year. 
One of the biggest complaints I saw online about this version is that in order to have a full set of cards to build your deck with, you have to buy three copies of the core set, and that can be a bit steep for those trying to game on a budget. Between October of 2017 and June of 2021, which is when the final set released, Fantasy Flight Games released three premium expansions, seven clan packs, five dynasty cycles consisting of six packs each, plus the core set, which had 355 cards in it. And it should be noted that this version of the card game was not compatible with the original, so if you wanted to play the new game, you had to shell out for all the new cards you wanted. Fantasy Flight Games announced when they released the last set in 2021 that they were, for now anyway, done with the L5R card game, though I'm going to doubt we've seen the last of it. Over the years, L5R has also seen a LARP, several board games, and even a living card game, which works similarly to the regular card game, just with fewer cards in the deck. L5R has had a long and distinguished history in the gaming world, and if you've never checked it out, I would highly recommend you do so. And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we jump into D&D settings with the final of the three subjects I've been working on for a while. We dig into the setting Dark Sun, which is actually a personal favorite of mine, but not necessarily for my group. In the meanwhile, I recommend you check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. This week, we wrap up the build for our Deadlands Classic campaign, and I update how my group did in their game last week. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music for your next project. Role Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. Twitter at Bad GMP. On YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, you can catch us at badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's Dark Sun, and you'll see both why I like to run it and my group does not like to play it. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.